Gentlemen, to the first ever For Real Movie Club. I am your moderator tonight, Chris the Dace Man Dace, and joining me are my panelists of Mike Payton. What's shaking, world? Travis Goss. Hello, hello. Michael Burhan. Hi. And Anthony Mango. Excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> Never mind that shit. Here comes Mango. <laughs> it's, Mon- it's Mongo, thank you. And we have a fun-filled inaugural episode for you tonight. We will be discussing Mel Brooks films, so let's dive right into the action. And we'll start with 1974's Blazing Saddles, a Western comedy film directed by Mel Brooks, starring Cleveland Little and Gene Wilder. Uh, The screenplay was produced by Andrew Bergman, Mel Brooks, Richard Pryor, Norman Steinberg, and Al Ugger. That's a terrible last name. Wait, did you say anal hugger? I think so. It was close. Okay. Um, Brooks appears in many supporting roles, including the governor and a Yiddish-speaking Indian chief. Uh, The supporting uh, cast also includes Slim Pickens, Alex Karras, and David Huddleston. So what we'll do is first we'll go around the roundtable and we'll get the initial reactions to the film itself. And we will start with you, Mr. Payton. Oh, boy. Um, Well... (laughs) Let me just preface this by saying I developed a reputation across most of the shows that I'm involved with of being the person who tries to be positive amongst things. Tonight is not going to be one of those nights. Uh, I I know Mel Brooks is very well-beloved, and I have a lot of respect for Mel Brooks, and I like a lot of the things he does. So it's it's not going to be all hate, but I also am going to have a very hard time just shooting rainbows up his butt throughout this entire thing, um, specifically with this movie. This movie was a absolute chore to watch it actually took me three times to sit through this movie and i've seen it before years and years ago um on comedy central and of course that was an edited version when i was like 10 so i don't have a lot of memories about it back then uh watching it now though it was just tough um it i think the most recurring problem i have with mel brooks and i'm going to be bringing up is he doesn't know how to write likable characters he knows how to write a good joke and specifically a joke that happens right away, like um, a quick pun or something along those lines. He's not very good at setting up something long-term or even good running gags, and he's awful at writing characters. There's not a single character in Blazing Saddles that I liked. Uh, Everyone was just flat, uh, no likable traits. Even Gene Wilder, who I am going to sing the absolute highest praises of Gene Wilder a little bit later, even in this movie, he was boring. He had no, no, he had no excitement. You know, this whole time he's just talking, yeah, the Waco kid. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't want to take up hogging this whole point on the <laughs> on the first note, but I I will be the the, the negative voice on this one. <laughs> uh, Mr. Goss, what was your first impression of watching the movie? Um, I hundred uh, complete hundred eighty 
uh, degree feeling that uh, Mr. Payton has because I absolutely love this movie. And one thing, let's just get out in the open right now. When you think Blazing Saddles, we all have to think about the farting scene. That is, I mean, I know by um, we have a lot of fart jokes in other movies since then and all that stuff. But this one, I think this was one of those movies that had something like that for the first time where it was just openly funny. And they, they exaggerated it. Because that's, that, that's one thing you notice about in, in Mel Brooks' movies is he does exaggerate on a few things. Um, not to the point where it's uncomfortable. That's how I look at it. Um, but this movie, I mean, this was a film that, um, this is the second Mel Brooks movie I've ever seen when I was a kid. Uh, the first one was Spaceballs, and we're going to get into that a little bit later on. But I thought this movie was hilarious. Um, he definitely takes a lot of the, the the stereotypes that you'd find in these old West movies and exploits the hell out of them. And introducing something, th- this movie actually had uh, social commentary um, at that time, which is uh, race. Which is um, actually still a pretty big uh, topic, uh, even by today's standards. But um, but in this movie, they were introducing the fact that there's this character named Bart, who was um, a railroad worker. He was a black uh, railroad worker. Boy, that just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and he's you know uh, one of the characters uh, played by uh, Harvey Corman, who is a phenomenal comedic actor himself. He um brings this guy in as the new sheriff for uh, Rock Ridge. Um, and he has... The, 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 I, can't, I can't get the words out. The story of the film really is, is there's this town called Rock Ridge, and these developers of the railroad are trying to build a railroad uh, through this land, and the land is inhabited by the people of Rock Ridge. And they're trying to scare them all out so that they can take the land. Um, they tried every method possible, and they still want to stay and fight it out. And when the sheriff was killed, um, they sent a letter to the governor, in which case the governor um, wants to try to find this uh, new uh, sheriff for Rock Ridge. And then what happens after that is uh, Harvey Corman came, comes up with this brilliant idea of putting a black uh, sheriff in there, thinking that... Everybody's going to disrespect him. They're going to leave town and all that stuff. But a lot of things that happen in that movie uh, are around this fact that there's a black uh, sheriff. But he does everything to, uh, to have people say that, you know, I'll just stay around. Let's fight these people. You know, we're going to save this town. But it's just a funny movie. I really love it. They have a lot of really great characters and everything. Okay. Uh, Mr. Burham, what was your first uh, reaction to the film? Um, truthfully, it's slapstick comedy. It should be taken as such. You know, if you're looking for story, subtext, and, and brilliant writing, then Mel Brooks films aren't for you. It, it kind of has, in a sense, it's satire. You know, yeah. it, it, it plays to the whole sense of, let's go in there, let's be as funny as possible, let's throw in some jokes, and let's have the story revolve around the jokes themselves instead of the other way around. It even had, like, as Travis said, a fart joke. You know, there's only certain movies that can get away with fart jokes without them becoming repetitive. Mel Brooks sort of cultivated the jokes and, and threw them in there as little nuances, in a sense. Um, it, it, it was good. It's not the most amazing piece of screenwriting ever, but it, it was a laugh and a half. Uh, and finally, Mr. Mango, what was your thoughts on the movie? 
Well, I'm just going to keep it short here. I'm sure we're going to go in more in-depth, and I'll break down all the pluses and negatives for that later on. But first reaction is uh, I liked this a lot more my second time watching this than I did the first time, but it still is not going to be my go-to Mel Brooks movie. There's one of these movies above all the rest that it makes the other ones pale in comparison. And when we get to that, I'll talk more. But Blazing Saddles does have its positives, and it does have its negatives. Cool. So as we got our first initial reactions on things, one of the points that we've touched base on, um, and it's been touched almost all of your uh, initial reactions, is the subtle, uh, or the not-so-subtle, racial overtones. Now, this being a film in 1974, before everybody got uh, more or less butthurt over everything, um, politically correct was not in mind. So <laughs> we're going to go around the uh, panel real quick, and we'll start with uh, Mr. Goss this time. The racial overtones, uh, did it bother you? What were your thoughts on how this film portrayed that? Uh, like I said before, it was it was social commentary about how race was, especially then in the late 60s and 70s. Um, I really... Uh, the way that Mel Brooks uh, did this film is... And I remember um, listening to the commentary of this film on uh, DVD... He was trying not to make that such a big um, a big thing as it were, because in the script, he was always trying to find ways where, the, I mean, the word nigger. I mean, I, I personally, I hate that word. I really do. Um, but he did it to the point in the film where he wasn't doing that to be overly um, racist or anything. He was trying to put, like, a comedic spin on it. Um, so I didn't take, like, great offense to it, um, because he was... He was um, he and all the other writers of the, of, the, of this movie, they were trying their best to be very delicate with uh, that word and also with this uh, situation of racism in in the old west. And I think he, they de- uh, they handled the whole sa- uh, whole thing very delicately. I think. Mr. Burhan, uh, what were your thoughts on the uh, overtones? Oh. Some motherfucker better stay in their lane. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, in terms of the racial overtones, uh, again, I, I agree with Travis on that. It wasn't due to them being overly racist. It's more to highlight the fact that racism was in that, that sort of time. But at that time, you kind of they were more free with the wording that they would say. You know, Certain words, certain phrases would be said uh, in those t- style of movies, and, and they were more acceptable. Whereas nowadays, it's kind of every sort of film that you hear that word in is more of a white guilt movie. Um, but in terms of that, it's it's completely as well part of Mel Brooks's humour. He, he kind of has that whole uh, racist overtones in his movies. It's kind of defined who he is in, in a sense. But again, he does overly make fun of himself because he's Jewish. You know, he, mm-hmm. he he does it a lot. You know, he makes fun of himself and he tries not to sugarcoat over the way he feels about any other culture. And again, it's not probably an opinion of his, but more sort of letting out the general consensus. True. Uh, Mr. Mango? Well, the movie doesn't exist without the racist jokes. I mean, that's the backbone of the whole thing. Without that, you really have no purpose of seeing this movie. You might kind of go into it expecting it to be making fun of Westerns, and it's all going to be about Westerns, but really, how much of it is about the Western motif as opposed to the racist jokes and the Western motif kind of supporting it? 
But what's good about that is it isn't a racist movie making fun of blacks. It's taking something that's terrible and playing around with it. We have dark comedies all the time that make fun of like murder or um, embarrassing situations or anything else that's bad. So why not take something like racism and use that to build a bridge for comedy? Stand-up comedians do it all the time. So I see no point in if anybody is like upset about this kind of a movie. It's all for the jokes. And the best thing about that is it start, starts off immediately setting the pace that we're not making fun of any particular person here. And if anybody is going to come to the assumption that this is a movie where we're making fun of blacks and African-Americans and slave times and whatever, just because, oh, let's pick on them. Who are the people that look stupid at the very beginning? The white guys. And that's a great way to set the tone. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Payton. I mean, <laughs> to say that it's like a, a small part of it would be an understatement. Tony is absolutely right. I'm not saying that you said it was fine. I'm saying anybody who would say that would be an understatement. Tony hit the nail on the head. This movie is based on these racial jokes. Uh, I actually joked with Tony in conversation earlier that um, he, he was coming up with this whole theory about how uh, the first half of the movie was really good and then the second uh, or the third quarter of it dropped down and then the last quarter of it was terrible. Um, and I was like, yeah, and it's kind of like at that halfway point where they drop the racist jokes and they start going more for like this hero sh- sh- like shtick. And that's kind of like where it stops being funny. Is like, am I a terrible person because I stop liking anything about the movie once they stop doing the racist jokes? <laughs> um, from the very start, though, I mean, in the very first scene, you hear him dropping nigger, you hear him dropping chink, you hear him dropping anything that they could think of to fit into that scene. Um, but it, it's all done so quick. I mean, there and yeah, it's done hateful. I shouldn't say that it's not done in a hateful way, but you could definitely tell that this is a comedy. It's not doing it like in Django, where it's very obviously being done, where this person's trying to make this person look terrible in front of you. As Tony said, in this case, the white guys are looking like the the idiots. And uh, Besides that, there's nothing else to go into the movie. Yep. I, I'm agreeing with Tony on that so much. There's nothing else to like in this movie. Um, the the Western thing, it's not only just like a, a sec, like an afterthought to what you're seeing in this movie. There gets to a point in this movie where they just completely drop the Western thing. And they're fighting all over sets throughout uh, a Hollywood backlot. Which, you know, breaking the fourth wall is nothing foreign to Mel Brooks either. But they that's probably the biggest level they ever take it. They probably spent, what was it, like a good 15, 20 minutes outside of that Western set. So, that's... Uh, that's where I sit with that. Some interesting notes that come out of this movie itself is uh, one of the writers happens to be Richard Pryor. And if anybody's familiar with Richard Pryor, he's a very uh, brash and sometimes contra- controversial uh, comedian who did stand-up plenty of times. But he was originally slated to play the role uh, Cleveland Little did as uh, Bart. But the studio trying to get financing in Hollywood to get this movie off the ground, they found it hard to... Uh, progress with Pryor in the, that role. I uh, that would have made that movie so much better because Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor have an amazing chemistry together. Anything they've done where they work together is instantly gold. Um, and just to have those on set, I imagine they would have let him do a lot of um, a lot of improving, and that probably would have just made so much more in that movie. And, and to piggyback off that idea, uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about with these movies and as we go through this podcast is, is casting. Mm. And a, as you hit the nail on the head, especially for, as a moderator, I'm trying to keep it neutral, but uh, Richard Pryor, I think, would have been awesome in this movie. So we'll start with you, Mr. Payton. Um, casting, was it done right? Would you change anything? 
Would you X anybody? Go ahead. Uh, Bart was terrible. This guy had a a nice smile, and that's about the only thing likable he had about him. I don't know how he got picked for this part. There, there had to have been tons more actors you could have gone. Richard Pryor, you, you mentioned a name like that. That's like absolutely number one. Shit, put George Jefferson in there. That would have been a better role for it than that guy. Um, Gene Wilder, you, you can't blame him for picking Gene Wilder, but it, this is only, what, two or three years, I believe, after Willy Wonka, uh, and the very same year as Young Frankenstein, which just shocks me. For, for for how like different of um how different of looks these movies have considering they were made in the same year, uh, Gene Wilder was a very busy man that year. But as I was saying before, I think this was a phoned-in performance for him. Uh, out of all the movies I've seen with him in it, I think this is the weakest he's ever done. Uh, I don't even know anyone else who was cast in there. <laughs> um, Mongo is cool because <laughs> it's like a big <laughs> oaf. He, he's kind of like a, a predecessor to Hodor from Game of Thrones. I, I don't remember anybody else. Oh, oh, um, well, Mel Brooks always has his uh, role. He's usually playing some type of uh, president or person that's in a high level of power. Mm-hmm. He's, um, what is he? He's like the, the mayor or whatever they're calling uh, him. Governor. The governor. Yeah, the governor. Yeah, the governor. Uh, he, was, he, he did fine, I suppose. Um, the one main sheriff dude who always seems to be getting some kind of weird injury happening to him. <laughs> he He was fine, I guess. No, no one that I'm going to like stick out and even search like all these other movies. I think I had to go and search IMDb to like look out who that person was and what else they've done at least once. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did once for Blazing Saddles. Another name that is uh, part of the attached to this movie is Dom DeLuise, who is also a uh, good oh. a, a buddy. He plays uh, Buddy Bizarre who is a friend of Mel Brooks. So Mel Brooks has a habit of kind of incorporating some of his friends into the movies. Uh, Dom DeLuise is one of those just for those out there keeping score on trivia. Well, uh, a lot of people actually do that as well, because as you find, especially with a lot of modern directors, they, they tend to migrate to people they like to work with. Yeah. How many freaking Scorsese films is freaking Leo going to be in? <laughs> exactly. Well, same thing. As soon as Scorsese finds something that works, he tends to sort of overly do it. And I, I have heard like Leonardo DiCaprio just say that he's probably not going to do any more Scorsese movies. It, but uh, if he keeps the trend going, we could do, definitely do a uh, four-reel movie club on Scorsese into Leo Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, they, they do have kind of a bromance going on. Uh, oh. we'll, we'll stick with you, uh, Mr. Burham. How do you feel about the casting? Did, was it, did they hit it right? Anything you would change? I, I would literally, I would have casted Richard Pryor because he's the, uh, I know in Hollywood they kind of, they, they got him and they didn't get him, if that makes sense. Because once he started like blowing up with Gene Wilder, they started casting him in, in roles just to, to promote him like uh, i remember does anyone remember like with uh superman when he was cast in that for no specific reason just to have him do his comedy routines mm-hmm. you know um and w- with this type of movie i think it was overly needed because it would have balanced out the, the the kind of racism in a sense because he's very quick-witted he's very um funny and he's also very hot I wouldn't say, like, the way I want to say it is I don't want to sound like I'm racist, but he he's very homely looking in a sense. You know, he's kind of the guy that they were looking for. And in terms of the other guy, I didn't see that from him. All I saw was he was trying to play up a stereotype, but he was kind of like he was overdoing it. Uh, again, as Payton stated, um, Gene Wilder uh, has great chemistry with the guy. You know, the two of them work so well together. They gel so well together. And in terms of this, uh, it didn't really 
have that. It it kind of seemed a bit more dry because of the way that the camps work. And yes, I, I again in agreement with Payton, Gene Wilder did act like he was phoning things in. It it, it didn't seem like the type of role that he was uh, more comfortable in. But again, it could be the people that he was playing with. It could have been the writing. It could have been that he didn't understand the character or he had different beliefs. It could have been a number of things. Um, but as a Mel Brooks film, as, as well as it, this film goes, I think everybody was casted rightly so, uh, in a sense, apart from that one guy. I, just, I feel that Pryor should, was made for that role. And as you can say, uh, Pryor did write the script intending for the character to be for him. Uh, Mr. Mango, what are your thoughts on the casting? You know, I don't know enough of the actors from that era to really be able to pick alternatives because that was 13 years before I was born in 74. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I would not, not be able to do a fan cast like I would have been able to do for, you know, the modern movies that we can pull out now. But I think some people pulled off their roles okay. Slim Pickens, he was solid. Um, I don't know the name of the actor, but the one who played Hedley Lamar, I thought that he was actually really good in the movie. That was Har- uh, Harvey Corman. Whoever played uh, Mel Brooks's secretary, that woman, uh, her chest did its job. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there aren't really any standouts. And funny enough about Gene Wilder, he was originally supposed to play another role. I can't remember what it was. It might have been Hedley Lamar, But he actually wanted the Waco Kid role. So he specifically went out of his way to get that spot. And I have to agree with everybody else. It's kind of just a blasé performance. It's not necessarily bad, and I'm sure that there could have been significantly worse people that could have played the role, but there probably were people that were better as well. Well, here's so the thing. Just... If it was your first time seeing Gene Wilder, you probably just figure, like, oh, you know, whatever. But in the same week that we watched Young Frankenstein, and if you've seen Willy Wonka in your life, it's just shocking to see how bland he was in that movie. Yeah, in this one, he's another dude amongst a bunch of dudes. And in pretty much every other role for like the rest of his entire life, Gene Wilder is, holy crap, it's Gene Wilder. Whether it's Willy Wonka or the Mel Brooks films that he's done or even See No Evil, Speak No Evil or whatever the hell that is. Hear No uh, Evil, Hear No Evil. Same thing, yeah. <laughs> Speak No Evil, uh, Taste No Evil, whatever that movie is. Yeah. Pay No uh, Evil. But Gene Wilder does kind of fall flat here and it's a shame. And lastly, Mr. Goss, what were your, your feelings on the whole casting? Um, you, you are an, When it comes to the balancing of the uh, scales, you were definitely in favor of uh, this movie. Oh, yeah, because I'm a huge fan of this movie. And I think that uh, I think they did a pretty good job on casting. And I know a lot of people were like uh, on this panel, say, panel saying that, uh, that they should have had um, Richard Pryor playing uh, Sheriff, um, or play, playing Bart, that is. But the thing is, when you really look at Cleveland Little, who played that character, he did it with such a seriousness. And I think that was kind of smart and on their part to have him to play that role, because if they would have had uh, Richard Pryor playing that character, I really don't know if people would have taken the whole movie that seriously. That's what my uh, feeling is on that. Um, but I think that I think it was pretty smart that they got Cleveland Little in there to, to fill that role. It's just something about it. He just brings such uh, charisma to that character that just kind of just uh, sells you on it. Or at least it sold it sold me very well. Um, but in terms of Gene Wilder playing uh, the Waco Kid, he was a second choice because what had happened, and I remember this from the commentary, that they were bringing um, – they had this older uh, actor who was going to be playing that uh, part because they wanted originally to have the, an older person 
to play this washed up, drunken old has been gunslinger. Um, and I believe that character's name, um, character, that actor's name was uh, Gig Young. And I remember hearing in the commentary that he became extremely sick on the set. And they had a shut down production that day. And I guess uh, uh, later that day, Gene Wilder and uh, Mel Brooks got into a phone conversation and they were talking about that situation. And and Gene was like, well, I can come in. I can... I, um, my schedule's pretty open. I can come in and I can play this role. And Mel was like, I don't know. I mean, you're, I mean, I appreciate it, but you're kind of you're a bit too young for this role. This is Locker Bond. Let me give me a chance. And they brought him in, and, and we know him as the Waco Kid. I don't. I don't. In terms of that role, I don't think that role defined him, in a sense. I, I just, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, Travis, and also the, the whole thing about it. The film itself was supposed to be a comedy. And when you have a serious actor playing a serious role in a comedy, that very rarely works out. But at the same time, what, the way I view it is... Uh, wait, are you referring to Cleveland Little? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of like serious actors who become part of a comedy film and all that because they're tr- they they come into this role with a, such uh, passion for it, you know, and they try to bring as much charisma to it, like I said before... And I think for Cleveland Little, I I, don't, I just think that it was a, a good choice to put him in there. I mean, I when I look back on it and think about how Richard Pryor would have played that character, I, I don't know. Just it, I really don't know. I don't know if it would have been as popular as it is uh, now. But for, I'm just saying that I think that they did a pretty good casting uh, job for casting that character and everybody else who was in this film. To break away from casting for a little bit and to uh, give you some fun facts or trivia about the movie, the budget that was allotted to the film was $2.6 million, and the box office saw about $1.1 million profit. Uh, the runtime's 95 minutes, and one thing that it did do is it, it got a lot of awards and honors. He was nominated for three Oscars, um, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Madeline Kahn, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Original Song. Uh, it's also earned two BAFTA award nominations for Best Newcomer, Cleveland Little, the guy that we uh, three out of four said Richard Pryor should have replaced or at least thought it would be a better decision, and Best Screenplay. Uh, before we wrap up Blazing Saddles, part of our conversation this evening, I'd like to go around the horn, talk to each of one of our panelists, and just give us your funny mo- uh, moment or something that stuck out from the movie uh, for you. We'll start with you, Mr. Uh, Mango. I did love the singing scene at the beginning. I loved uh, when he, when Mongo, I should say, hey, when Mongo punches the horse in the face, that's probably my favorite part <laughs> of the whole thing. And I really loved when the sheriff holds himself hostage, which, funny enough, if you look under the IMDb trivia, which is something that I'm guilty of doing for every movie that I watch, that is actually a reference to Mel Brooks holding up a store with a water pistol as a kid. Oh. There you go. Fun facts. Uh, Mr. Burham, what was your favorite moment or takeaway moment from this film? I had none. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the truth. There you go. Uh, Mr. Goss, favorite moment, uh, takeaway moments. This is uh, one of your favorite movies. Um, well, we've already re- referenced the fart scene, but I kind of like, like towards the end of Rory, uh, they have a big fight scene where it spills into the other movie studios, uh, the other um, lots there on Warner Brothers. Okay, and lastly, Mr. Payton, uh, any takeaways, funny moments, or things that you thought were just god-awful? 
Well, <clears throat> I'm going to give um, a couple positives before we, we go out on this one. First off, let me just give one shout out to the set designs and costumes. If I want to give any positive notes to this movie, I think they really did a fantastic job making it look like the Old West with the, the buildings, the saloons, even the governor's office, the, the woodwork they had in the walls was fantastic. Uh, the costumes looked great. I, I think they did a smash-up job with that. Uh, as far as my favorite funny moments, um, I have two. One of them is when they the sheriff, the sheriff first showed up and everyone had their guns drawn to him. And he pulled out his gun and he held it up to him. He's like, if anybody tries to make a move, I'm going to shoot this guy. <laughs> that, that was really funny. Um, and I think the other one I would say is... Uh, Specifically, when they're doing in, in, uh, specifically a part inside when they're doing that fight that's going across the entire lot, when they're getting to those ones where the uh, top hat dancers are going, and the director just comes in, cut, 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 no, no, it's like this, and he does it, and then just as he's finishing, the, he hits his last step, and he falls back into this pool of water, and he just like gets up, he huffs, he's like, got it. <laughs> Well, we'd like to thank everybody for joining us and, and talking to us with the Blazing Saddles uh, portion of For Real Movie Club. If you're listening to us on the archive sessions, make sure you check out the next video as we fast forward 10 months and 8 days to the next film in 1974, Young Frankenstein. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, our next film on uh, For Real Movie Club this month is Young Frankenstein, which debuted December 15th, 1974, uh, 10 months after our predecessor in this conversation, uh, Blazing Saddles. Uh, Young Frankenstein is a 1974 American comedy film directed by Mel Brooks and written by him and Gene Wilder. Uh, Gene Wilder also is one of the key starring uh, actors as Frankenstein in this movie, and the supporting cast includes Terry Garr, Cloris Leachman, Marty Feldman, Peter Boyle, Madeline, Madeline Kahn, Kenneth Mars, Richard Hayden, and Gene Hackman. Um, the film is affectionately a parody of the classic horror film genre and is most notably shot in black and white. So what we're going to do is, just like we did for Blazing Saddles, we're going to go around the horn and get first impressions. This time we'll start with you, Mr. Burham. What was your first impression of Young Frankenstein? I loved it. It was, uh, again, very tongue-in-cheek in terms of the the whole... Frankenstein lore, in a sense. Um, I loved the the musical bit where he did Walking on the Ritz, because it's just it, it's just actually so funny. It's like it's so retarded when he has the monster just dance with him, and every time he's doing the sing song, and then the monster's like, <laughs> it sounds like something Stallone would say. Um, it, again, it was very tongue in cheek satire in, in terms of the way that they would do things. Uh, in this movie, Gene Wilder added his own kind of flavor because it was more so a character that he cared about, that he loved, um, and he had more sort of creative input in this. You could actually show how this movie shined. Uh, I think it was one of his best roles uh, in general in, in terms of the way that he played that. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my perspective anyway. Okay. Uh, Tony, what were your opinions or first initial reaction at Young Frankenstein? It's a much easier film to just pop in and watch other than Blazing Saddles and my least favorite of the bunch, Spaceballs. But it's nowhere near as good as Robin Hood Men in Tights. And there aren't as many jokes throughout it that I would really give a clap to and just be like, you know what, really nice job, good, well done. But there are a couple that I really like a lot. Okay. Um... Mr. Goss, your opinion on Young Frankenstein? 
I think it's another really good movie that uh, Mel Brooks uh, came out with. And a little fun fact about the movie itself, they actually used parts of the original set of the original Frankenstein film in order to make this. And I thought it was pretty damn funny. I, it's just one of those movies that I just put, put in whenever, and I still laugh at all the funny scenes. Uh, I think the cat, it was a very well-casted film as well. I think it was, it was just a brilliant movie, and I still, I still highly adore it to this very day. Uh, Mr. Payton. This movie I very vividly remember seeing as a youngin. Um, one of my cousins had the VHS of it and popped it on, and he was teaching me of the fantastic actor known as Gene Wilder. This was my first exposure to him. And I was young. I didn't have any appreciation. I just kind of like laughed at some things I thought were funny. Maybe the monster sounded funny or something. Um, for the most part, though, I hated it because it was black and white, and I was young. I didn't want to watch a black and white movie. What the crap? Uh, as I got older and I, I rewatched it more and more, I, I begun liking it. And I probably haven't watched it in probably close to six, seven, eight years. So it wasn't still vivid. Or not just it wasn't as clear in my memory of every little thing about it. I just remember it was pretty good. Wow, I forgot just how fantastic Gene Wilder was in this movie. And I mean, Gene Wilder, just complete opposite of what he was in Blazing Saddles. And again, I'm not going to give any credit to Mel Brooks on this. Outside of Gene Wilder and a couple other things, I thought this movie was pretty drab as well. But Gene Wilder just nails this performance. Gene Wilder was born to play Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) He just took that role to whole new heights. He is by far my favorite Dr. Frankenstein of all time. Maybe uh, Peter Cushing would be the other one I would give in contention for him. But he was just freaking, oh, my God, so good. And I guess we're going to do the casting thing, too, so I'll get more about specifics. But holy shit, he made that movie. Can we just say that you had a a Frankenstein-gasm? (laughs) <laughs> Franken Frankengasm? Yes. Sounds like a horrible children's cereal. Um, a man of a million segues when it comes to Mr. Payton, because one, one point you touched on in your uh, first initial reaction was the fact that the film is entirely shot in black and white, and of the Mel Brooks films we're talking about tonight, uh, it's the only one that was shot in black and white. So since you, you got the ball rolling on this conversation, we'll continue rolling on. The black and white... What turned you off about uh, that part of the film, or was, why the film was shot that way? I was just young. I didn't like anything black and white. I think <laughs> I think the only thing I watched that was black and white was I Love Lucy at that point. <laughs> I, I was little. I wanted bright colors and cartoons. I didn't want to watch this old, boring black and white movie from, like, I was, like, what, like, six years old, so it was, like, twice of my lifetime before I was born. And also, <laughs> I, I <didn't> wanna... <laughs> and also he wanted comedic spousal abuse. Because, you know, I Love Lucy had a lot of comedic spousal abuse. <laughs> the weird thing is, when it comes to black and white, I, I'm absolutely on uh, Peyton's side. I Love Lucy was the only black and white thing I've ever watched as a kid. <laughs> um, but it, we'll go into more detail. Tony, you, you study this, well, not study, but you, you're a pretty much a good person to talk to when it comes to it. Do you think the black and white added to the film or took away from it? 100% added to it. It's not a movie like Clerks where you can get rid of the black and white element and nothing changes and it actually could have been an upgrade. I think if you take away the black and white from this, then it doesn't have that kind of a feel behind it. They're obviously making a parody of the Frankenstein movies, which were black and white. So having the same environment 
puts you right into the tone to be able to accept these jokes a lot more. It's a little bit weird if you were to see like a Wizard of Oz parody and it didn't have that Technicolor feel to it. Or if you were watching something from maybe the 90s and it's got modern effects to it. So having the black and white, huge bonus to this movie. Uh, Mr. Goss, how did you feel about the uh, black and white, and did it take to take away from you, give to you? Uh, what was your opinion? It didn't take anything away from me, I think, um, because I mean, at the end of the day, that's how it was designed. It's supposed to be a parody of the Frankenstein movie itself. Um, I think when I first watched it when I was a kid, I wasn't. I, I really didn't have any problems with black and white movies because I was practically raised on them. So I had no problems with this whatsoever, and I thought it was—I thought it was brilliant. I—I I loved it. The presentation alone was just fantastic. And, and lastly, Mr. Burhan, uh, your opinions on the black and white filming of uh, this movie? It's black. It's white. <laughs> um, truthfully, I—I didn't—I didn't see that it had any um, issue with it. It's—it's it's one of those things that if you've seen the original Frankenstein, it kind of wanted to sort of parody that atmosphere. You know, um, sort of black and white, very dark, very drab. Sort of uh, has that whole film noirish uh, variety to it. It's it's one of those things where it doesn't make or break the film in a sense. It adds to it, adds to the tone, adds to the complexity of the characters, adds, even adds to the jokes. Um, so I had no issue with it. It's black and white. Here we go. Yay. <laughs> Um, one focal point that I think is very important for this movie and and part of this man's career, uh, not only was this film written by Mel Brooks, uh, his co-writer on this project was Gene Wilder. And, and as we all know, Gene Wilder, Wilder is a legend in everybody's mind. Um, and this, this film itself was huge for him. Uh, to go around the panel, we'll talk a little bit more about Gene Wilder's performance, what you liked about it, what you've taken away, and how it's impacted uh pop culture and its legacy. So we'll start with you, uh, Mr. Goss. When it comes to Gene Wilder, what were your key takeaways when it came to Gene and his performance? He did a whole lot of screaming in this movie. I think that's what, <laughs> I think that's what he's known for. Uh, is He has a perfect way of yelling out his lines and everything and does it with such a comedic timing. It's, and that's the only thing I really remember so much of that movie, of his performance, is he, there's, there are moments where he is as deadpan serious, and then there are times he's just yelling his head off. And I don't know. It's just something. It's, I just think he does a pretty cool job in this film. Uh, Mr. Payton, your thoughts on uh, Mr. Wilder's uh, performance? Absolutely fantastic. This guy brought his A game. Every line that he's reading it throughout this, he's putting the proper emotion to it. Um, I said before in Blazing Saddles that the problem was that none of these characters had any depth. None of them were really likable. Very different. I had so many emotions for Dr. Frankenstein throughout this. I felt sympathetic for him. I wanted to get behind him to, to succeed what he was doing. I felt his pain at what he had done and the mistake he had gotten himself into. Um, and this movie was just all over the place. It wasn't just a comedy. This was dramatic. It, it was... Um, suspenseful there there was all these different elements in this movie and i i really think that this is a style that mel brooks should have stuck more for rather than going down this silly parodying route 
uh, silly satire, I should say, route that he, he more has become known for as he's gone on later in his career. This was so unique and awesome. I would have loved to have seen more done like this, especially with more people like Gene Wilder, which I, I said that he's the only thing that's in there. There's, there's other things that I would put in there as well. Uh, Igor was fantastic. Um, the the sheriff was pretty cool. Uh, again, the sets were fantastic, which were all borrowed from lots of other things, of course. Um, just to have actual emotion in this made it a much easier movie to watch, much more enjoyable. It's the longest. It was almost two hours, which is crazy for a, a movie that you would normally call a comedy movie to be anywhere near that long. Mm-hmm. Um I think my favorite part for Gene Wilder throughout this whole thing is when the beast initially escapes and he runs to the door and he's like, Oh God in heaven, what have I done? What have I done? Uh, Just Oscar worthy. And funny thing is Gene Wilder did get nominated for an Oscar for this movie, but not as an actor. (laughs) He got nominated as a writer. Which uh, kudos for him as well. I mean, maybe that's why this movie has so much better character uh, characters written inside it is because you had Gene Wilder behind the pen on it. Um, the movie also won a Hugo Award. It's one of the few awards that actually did win, not just get nominated for. It did win a Hugo for best dramatic presentation, not comedic, but dramatic. Uh, so I think that speaks a lot for how impactful this movie is on actual emotions rather than just laughs. Uh, Mr. Burham, what were your thoughts on Gene's performance? Stella. He was the only person I could actually see who overacted but made it sound relevant. (laughs) It's basically that the script was it it was contextualized in that way in in a sense. He he knew what level to hit the highs, he knew what level to hit the lows and the character was so big in a sense that it it seemed like they, they played that whole approach on vanity. You know, especially with the monster he was just it was astounding, you know, and um, he kind of parodied, but also put reference uh, to Mary Shelley's sort of characters in the sense that Frankenstein is the monster, but it, it, it kind of made it more, how can I say it without, without sounding like I'm, I'm kissing his ass? Uh, it's, they, they made it more sort of big, you know, like, like a million times bigger than it usually, that it should be, but it worked. It worked exactly for the script. Um, and yeah, he was, he was stellar. And, and the fact that he didn't actually win uh, any awards for his performance kind of just makes you sit there and think, why? And lastly, Mr. Mango, what were your thoughts on uh, Mr. Wilder's performance? One word, earnest. He pretty much takes this as if he's playing the actual Victor Frankenstein in a, a serious movie, which makes all the jokes hit that much better. Great job. I don't really have too much else to say. <laughs> um, when it comes to casting, one thing that I think is uh, noticeable in the list of movies we've, we're, we're going to be talking about tonight is the lack of Mel Brooks in the film itself. Um, unlike his previous and subsequent films, Brooks did not appear on screen as himself in Young Frankenstein, uh, though he did, he did uh, record a couple voices and portrayed a German villager in one short scene. Um, in 2012, Brooks explained that, uh, and I quote, I wasn't allowed to be in it. That was the deal Gene Wilder had. He said, if you're not in it, I'll do it. And then he laughs. Um, you, he also goes on to say, you have a way of breaking the fourth wall whether you want to or not, I just want to keep it. I don't want to be, I don't want too much to be, you know, a wink at the audience. I love the script. Um, 
So that was the deal, and that's why there was less Mel Brooks. Now, when it comes to this film being one of uh, Mel Brooks being a co-writer of it, um, we'll start with you, Mrs. G- Mr. Goss. Almost I said Mrs. I apologize. Um, do you think the lack of Mel Brooks made the film better, took away from the film? I really didn't care, to be honest. I didn't care if he was in the film or not. Mm-hmm. It didn't really... I mean, even if you were, were to have shown up in the film at some point in the physical form, it wouldn't have taken anything away out of it. I, I still, the movie still stands as does, and I just, okay. I, don't know, I, I just don't think that I was, if he was in the movie or not, it just wouldn't have mattered. It was, it was great the way it was. Maybe the better question would be when it comes to Mel Brooks in his film: Was it noticeable that he wasn't in it compared to the three, the four movies we watched this uh, past month? Was Mel Brooks absent extremely noticeable it was noticeable but at the same time it wasn't anything that could have uh, it wasn't anything that would have changed in the film had, if you would have uh, been in the film at all so mm-hmm. I really just didn't care I thought it was great uh, Tony what are your opinions on Mel Brooks and his uh, lower role when it comes to uh, actually being in the film to be perfectly honest I totally didn't realize that he was in it in it He's in it, but like not as heavily featured as he is in all his other films. But it, he's just a couple voices, like a cat getting hit with a dart. And <laughs> well, I would have called that out. I mean, come on. Yeah. Clearly, that's Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he did a werewolf in the, the German villager. But uh, part of the deal, I guess, he had with Gene was not to be in as much. Do you think it hurt the film? Do you think it made it better? Either or. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference. Um like I said, I didn't realize that he wasn't in the movie, and that wasn't in positive or negative role. I wasn't hoping that he would pop up. I mean, I have seen this movie twice uh, before. All these movies I've seen, and then I just rewatched recently, so you know, keep it fresh in my mind. I couldn't remember him being in it, and watching this again, I wasn't waiting for him to pop up. Kind of like doing like a Hitchcock thing, where it's like, when's he going to show up? Or a Tarantino, when's he going to pop up? And that'll be really cool, but. It didn't need to happen, but I'm pretty sure if it would have happened, it wouldn't have taken away anything from the movie. And it probably wouldn't have made it that much better of a movie either. It's, you know, a hit or miss kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burhan? In a sense, I think it helped the movie because there, sometimes you've got to look at it this way. You don't want to keep putting yourself out there and in people's faces because they're going to end up getting sick of you. Um, in terms of the the text itself, in terms of the characters, let them speak for themselves instead of throwing yourself in there to let them know that you're in on the joke. So I think it helped the movie like tenfold. And lastly, uh, Mr. Payton, your thoughts? Yeah, Mel Brooks is not exactly a shining star as an actor. I think it's cool that he finds a part for himself in his movies as long as it's something small. Um, it's something like Blazing Saddles, I think it got overbearing. Um, but if it's something really tiny, it's fine. Not being there at all is perhaps even better. Um, I didn't miss him at one bit at all. <laughs> um, to, to take a break in the, in the middle of the questioning rounds and just go through some of the facts of the movie, uh, some of the awards and their nominations uh, were Academy Award for Best Sound, Richard Portman and Gene can't say his last name, but it starts with can't. Um, Academy Award for Writing Adapt- Adapted Screenplay, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. Uh, Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, uh, Cloris Leachman. Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress, uh, Madeline Kahn. 
and the WGA Award for Best Comedy Ad- Adapted from Another Medium, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. Uh, the film itself was, like I said earlier in the beginning of this part of the segment, was de- released December 15, 1974, with a running time of 105 minutes. Um, the budget was $2.78 million, and it brought in $86 million at the box office. So to continue our uh, conversation here on Young Frankenstein itself, w- one part we did in the last segment, and I'd like to do it here to give us a little bit more time about it since it's more of a favorable movie and we talked. We hit place on uh, Gene. Uh, we'll start with you, Mr. Burhan. What was your favorite moments, and uh, what were your takeaways from this movie? Uh, my favorite moment, as I said, it was the the Walking on the Ritz musical scene. Uh, the takeaway from the movie, I, for me, it showed comedy done right, and also uh, in terms of Mel Brooks, it kind of made me fall in love with his comedy stylings in a sense. Uh, this was the movie that got me into his future movies, like Spaceballs, for instance. And um, it allowed you to see exactly what he could do without having himself enter the scenes to tell the joke. You know, he allowed the script to stay for to stand for itself. And also with someone like Gene Wilder as well, it, it allowed him to stand out as an actor. You know, it allowed him to work with the text, uh, you know, pr- become his character. And it showed exactly what the duo could do. You know, um, it, it totally put movies like Blazing Shadows to shame, for instance. And, you know, it also allowed you to to see what you could actually do on something which was a modest budget. You know, it made a lot of money for a film that wasn't actually, you know, you, that nowadays you're spending like $200 million, uh on movies just to make it look nice or to add loads of special effects. With this, they allowed the story doing the talking. Okay, uh, Mr. Payton, what was your thoughts, favorite moment, takeaway from Young Frankenstein? Oh, gosh. Um, one little thing that I actually kind of appreciated was the fact that to get electricity, they used kites. I thought that, that was a, <laughs> a funny little thing that they did. Um, I think my favorite joke throughout the whole movie, though, is after he first tries to bring life into the monster and he's unsuccessful and him, the, the girl and Igor are at the table eating. And, uh, Igor says, uh, you know what my father used to say to me in situations like this? Why don't you get out of the bathroom and give somebody else a chance? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Mr. Goss, what was your favorite moment or takeaway from young Frankenstein? Um, God, there's so many. Um, well, some of them have already been mentioned. Uh, the one that comes to mind is it towards the end of the movie when uh, when he was Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> he was uh, giving a lecture, and then one of his students was getting into kind of a brain match with him, and then culminated when uh, he uh, when Doctor Frankenstein actually stabbed his leg with a suture. <laughs> And I was like, okay, he made his point, quite literally. But, yeah, that's another funny movie that uh, Bowman sends out for me. Okay, and lastly, Mr. Mango? Uh, it's got to go to with Igor. The <laughs> fact that he calls it Igor with the Frankenstein thing is such a great joke. Um, the hump, definitely my favorite out of the whole thing. What hump? It's such a simple, simple joke that goes over really well. And another thing I always loved was the Gene Hackman scene. 
with the yeah. soup and the cigar and everything like that. Hackman really does a great job in that. And it's such a thankless role. Nobody ever remembers that Gene Hackman's in this movie. Uh, lastly, one of the last points we want to talk about as we run through our, we're in our, within our last 10 minutes of this segment of Four Real Mo- uh, Movie Club is Young Frankenstein went on to be adapted as a musical um, by Mel Brooks with the music of Tom Meehan and uh, lyrics by Brooks uh, based off of this movie that it was uh, in 1974. It had a run in Seattle as a tryout in 2007 and then hit Broadway from 2007 to 2009. And it does U.S. tours uh, starting in 2009. Now, the one thing that I'm going to, this is leading to when it comes to questions is um, in the world that we live in today, since creativity is slowly dying, reboots are a huge thing. Do you ever see that young Frankenstein um, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this on Blazing Saddles, but for Young Frankenstein, is there a potential for a reboot? Uh, we'll start with you, Mr. Payton. Gosh, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like I said, Gene Wilder just nailed his performance, not just the, the role of playing Young Frankenstein, but just Dr. Frankenstein in general. I, I would hate to see them try to redo something like this, especially unless you're going to have, uh, I don't know, I guess you could try to get Gene Wilder involved. He's He's just been retired all this time. I guess you could try to pull him out of it, but I can't imagine he would want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would err on the side of no. Okay. Uh, Mr. Goss, read I, hope, <laughs> I agree. I really hope they, that never becomes a consideration. I thought it was kind of strange they turned it into a Broadway musical. Um, um, but that's uh, that's Mel Brooks for you. But no, I hope they don't do a reboot of this, and I'd be really pissed if they did. Okay. Uh, Mr. Burhan. Um, in terms of reboots, I think it's better left alone. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Mango. No reboots, but you got to do a prequel of even younger Frankenstein or a <laughs> sequel of older Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Jumping across the platforms there. Um, when it comes to young Frankenstein, like we said, and we've been talking about it several times, it was nominated for a lot of awards. And this, to at least a lot of the panel here, is the first uh, breakout Mel Brooks film that we kind of identify within the four that we're talking about tonight. Um, to go more in depth with young Frankenstein, uh, there's an actor in there that later would play a, a role of uh, Ray's father on Everybody Loves Raymond, Peter Boyle. Um, how do you guys feel about Peter Boyle as the Frankenstein creature? Uh, we'll start with you, Mr. Burham. It wasn't noticeable. To tell you the truth, I didn't see the character defined uh, as an actor. I just saw him as the creature. Um, so he did his job well. <laughs> um, but he, you know, he didn't... How, how can I say it? It's, it the, the character was just the character. The monster was the monster, and it was a believable monster. Okay, uh, Mr. Payton? Uh, the, the opposite of, as I said, Gene Wilder nailed the role of Dr. Frankenstein. This is just about as blah as blah as you can get for the role of the actual monster. Uh, far, far cry from Boris Karloff uh, and pretty much anyone else, Lon Chaney Jr., or anybody who's played that role. I, I would actually put that one at the bottom. <laughs> Funny how you have the, the complete opposite of what you have for uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Okay, uh, Mr. Goss? Um... I think he was just casted because uh, they just want. Since this is going to be a straight-up comedy, Miles will get somebody in there who could play his role comedically, and I think they've done a pretty good uh, job casting him. I think. 
And lastly, uh, Tony, what were your thoughts on Peter Boyle? He was all right. Nothing special, nothing too bad. But it's funny that he goes on to be in Everybody Loves Raymond, and out of everybody of the cast of that, he's the one who plays Frankenstein, not Brad Garrett. Yes. (laughs) You would think. Uh, Brad Garrett being so huge and just has that voice for it. Um, Everybody loves Raymond. (laughs) Everybody loves Frankenstein. (laughs) Um, As we come up on our last five-minute warning here of Young Frankenstein, uh, one of the last things I want to talk about is the high praise that it gets on Rotten Tomatoes, where it has a 94% uh, rating, and it was number 13 on AFI's top 100 uh, comedies list. Um, when it comes to a ranking system, we'll give it a 1 through 10 scale, 1 being it's terrible, 10 it's over the top, I love it, this is the greatest movie ever since Shawshank Redemption. Um, we'll start Before. with... Yeah. We'll start with you, Mr. Mango. What would you rate this movie on a 1 to 10? Uh, 1 to 10 scales I'm usually tough with. I'm going to have to go with something around like a 6, 7. I think that it does a pretty good job, but it's nowhere near as high up as it uh, ends up being. Yes, because with Rotten Tomatoes, it's 40 people that say, hey, this is the greatest movie, and then all of a sudden it's the greatest movie. Um, Michael Burhan, 1 to 10. I'd give it an 8. Uh, Mr. Goss? I give um, Young Frankenstein an 8, and I guess I'll give uh, Blazing Saddles a 9. Well, there you go. Uh, we'll we'll touch back with uh, Mr. Burhan and Tony real quick. What were your ratings on uh, Blazing Saddles? We'll start with you, Tony. If I can give Young Frankenstein a 7, I would give that maybe a 5.5, 6. Okay. And Burhan? 5. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Payton, what was your rating for on a scale of 1 to 10, Young Frankenstein? Oh, my goodness. Well, Gene Wilder's performance gets a 10. Uh, the movie overall, I would give it a, um, I would, I would give it a solid 7.5, 8, I would say. If, if I could do halves, 7.5. If I can't do halves, then I would round it up to 8. Okay. And Blazing Saddles, since we weren't able to get it in the last segment. Oh, my freaking God. <laughs> uh, I, I would say a 3 is generous. Ooh. So as we can see, so far in the Four Real Movie Club, Young Frankenstein uh, ranks a lot higher than Blazing Saddles. And we're going to round down our uh, second segment for Four Real Movie Club and just take a moment to let you guys know that you should check out all the programming here on Mega Powers Radio. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you can find uh, the Dace Man Show. You can find the Sports Talk Show every Saturday night uh, and the Raw Post uh, Show following immediately after Monday Night Raw on Monday's night. So that's the next show on this network tomorrow. Um, since we have two minutes left, I'd like to give a, a few minutes or a few moments to each guest here to plug the things that they may have. We'll start with you, Mr. Payton. Uh, well, as you're uh, plugging things that are going on this week on Mega Powers Radio, not just on Monday night, we're going to be talking wrestling after the Raw show. We're going to be doing a tribute to the Ultimate Warrior on Tuesday. Uh, very tragically, the Ultimate Warrior passed away directly after being inducted into the Hall of Fame last weekend. It's it's truly a bizarre story. Only in the world of wrestling can something like this go down. Um, so we're going to be having a show starting at 8 p.m. this Tuesday night where we're going to be talking about all of our favorite Warrior memories. We're going to be handpicking a few matches to talk about. So if you're a Warrior fan or if you just want to hear the same cast of people that you usually hear on Mega Powers Radio talking about the Ultimate Warrior, it's going to be a raucousy time. So tune in there. That, that's what I'll stick with for now. Okay. Um, Mr. Goss, what do you have real quick? Uh, let's see. Um, 
Wednesday nights, I'm on your show, The Chris Day Show, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, uh, here on Mega Powers Radio, and you can find me on YouTube.com slash Rose Carter Reviews, and YouTube.com slash Rose Carter Let's Play. And Mr. Burhan. Uh, you can find, basically, on a, a number of different programs. Uh, every uh, Tuesday, but that's been moved to Wednesday this week, at a special time, Untitled Movie Show of N- Miguel Leon. Uh, I've got gameplay, 8 p.m. every single Saturday, on fanboysanonymous.com and also the Retro Island Network. Um, I'm also on Travis's show, the Young Radio Show, uh, every Thursday. And you can check me out on youtube.com forward slash thenerdgenius or www.nerdgenius.com. Uh, the YouTube channel seems to be blowing up a lot. So I'm getting a load of hits, a load of videos, a lot of subscribers. Thank you all, and I love you. And lastly, Tony. Well, I'm just going to keep this short and sweet. Pay attention to everything that's coming your way from fanboysanonymous.com, the host of Four Real Movie Club, and all sorts of different stuff. There's too much to mention here. Go and check it out yourself. For those of you that are watching on YouTube or watching the archive session, uh, please go on to our next segment where we'll be going to the future and into space with Spaceballs. For those of you that are joining us live, remember you can always call in at 760-512-7247 and join in the conversation for Mel Brooks Films as we jump into the future for Spaceballs. Ladies and gentlemen, our next segment is Spaceballs, and this was a film that was done in 1987 and released uh, June 24th of that year. Produced and directed by Mel Brooks, written by him and Thomas Meehan and Ronnie Graham. It stars Bill Pullman from Independence Day, John Canney, Rick Moranis, Mel Brooks himself, Daphne Zuniga, Dick Van Patten, and Joan Rivers. Now, in despite of uh, what I think will be the general opinion here, this happens to be the moderator's favorite movie uh, when it comes to Mel Brooks. But it is the American comic science fiction parody um, that basically spoofs Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, Alien, Planet of the Apes, all those fun things that take place in the uh, fast future. So, as always, when it comes to our segments here on Four Real Movie Club, uh, we'll go around the horn and get your first impressions of Spaceballs. We'll start with uh, Mr. Burhan this time. Well, in certain retrospect, the, the movie has some balls. Um, <laughs> the, the fact that it does parody all these funny space movies um, and, and makes a, a sort of a laughing joke of them, it's hilarious, like uh, Pizza the Hut. You know, the, the, there's a scene in there where he ends up eating himself to death after being stuck in his car. Uh, <laughs> you, yeah, you have John Candy playing uh, a Wookiee, but instead of a Wookiee, he's a dog. You know, um, wow. oh, a Mog, yeah. Then you have Pullman's character just being totally off the wall. At first, you, you see him and you're thinking, oh, you know, he's hand solo, but then they, they end up just switching his character on so many levels. And the fun thing about it is, Pullman, it, it's one of the great things about playing a character straight in a comedy when it's called for, and he does it really well because he's not, you know, he, he's kind of arrogant, very brash type of space guy um, that. You, you see in this movie, and, and you, it's, it's very unlikable in a sense. Um, but the story, as it develops, you, you get to play around a, a little bit and watch how his character kind of grow into this uh, this prince, uh, so to speak. So it, it has that whole mocking fairy tale aspect to it as well. Um, the, the the whole funny thing about it as well is Rick, Rick Moranis is the funniest thing in this movie, um, you know, with his whole sort of Darth Vader parody going on there as well. Uh, what was he called? Um, Dark Helmet. 
Yes. Uh, and you know the the fact that he he's literally every time he's going to choke someone he's going for their balls as well. It's it, it's hilarious. It, it's satire. It plays on these genres. Um, it for me was comedy gold in a sense because it, it it it's kind of a humor to the lowest denominator in a sense. But it's it's called for. It's there. And the whole sort of uh, draining her world of air. Just it just made you laugh. It's just like, <laughs> you sat there trying to think about it, like having the 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 whole Death Star ship that they had turn into a vacuum cleaner, uh, or a maid holding a vacuum cleaner. It it really kind of it it, it made you laugh uh, to the point. Even as a kid, I got every single joke in this movie. So uh, for me, yeah, it, I loved it. <laughs> okay, uh, Mr. Payton, what were your thoughts on Spaceball? Oh boy. Uh well, if you thought I didn't like Blazing Saddles, I'm afraid I got some bad news cuz I really didn't like Spaceballs. Uh Spaceballs was a real real chore to watch. I actually watched Spaceballs. I uploaded it to my iPhone and I watched it while I was at work today. Uh because I generally have a lot of downtime, so I can uh, you know, pull it up, put my headphones in and, and watch it on there and it's it, it's fine. Um it was not fine because it was Spaceballs. <laughs> uh, this is one of the few occurrences where I was slacking off and I would have rather been working. This this was a miserable movie to watch. There there was All the jokes just missed for me. Uh, I felt it was a huge disservice to Star Wars. Um, and I'm not getting like butthurt because it's a parody about something I like. I really just think all the jokes were dumb. Um, watch something like Fanboys is a, is a movie with a lot of Star Wars jokes. And I thought that was an absolutely fantastic film. This was a was a pain. Um, the only thing that I did think saved it once again was one of the actors, which was Rick Moranis. He was fantastic. His timing was excellent. Um, I didn't care much for his costume. I thought the helmet was a little too goofy. Um, obviously, it was supposed to be goofy. I just think it was too goofy. Uh, I just did did not like this. <laughs> uh, Travis, um, this is uh, as I mentioned previously that this was the very first. Uh, Mel Brooks movie I've ever seen, and I was about let's see, I was about seven or eight when I first saw it, and I just laughed hysterically because I was brought up with uh, with Star Wars and Star Trek, and I I just laughed at it. It was so many great jokes in this thing, and I think of all the Mel Brooks movies, and I know this is probably going to cause a little bit of controversy amongst the group here. This one is also my favorite because carries everything that is sci-fi. It's to me it's 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 a it's a nerdgasm of sorts because it has so many great jokes. A lot of characters that parody some of these other uh characters from these other films. Brilliantly written. A lot of really good sight gags. It, it's a great movie. I love it. Okay. And lastly, uh Mr. Mango, what are, what are your thoughts on Spaceballs? It stinks. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> it sucks. I don't like it at all. I tried rewatching this last night and fell asleep. And I'm somebody who can go 48 hours without sleeping, and it's perfectly fine. There are virtually no jokes in this movie that I like. There's only a couple that I can give credit to. Most of the other ones, just bad execution. Partially because I'm a fan of Star Wars, and I wasn't really a fan of the source material for the other movies, but. Man, everything just seems so cheap in this. It reminds me of the movies like Epic Movie and Superhero Movie. It's not good enough to be on this list, I think. 
Um, when it comes to Spaceballs, some of the facts out about it, the budget was $22.7 million, one of the larger budgets for a Mel Brooks film. And the box office only brought in about $38. Um, it was produced by the studio's Brooks Films, uh, distributed by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And like I said, it's a running time of 96 minutes and released on June 24th in 1987. Now, one thing that we did mention is some of the stuff it was parodying. Uh, Star Wars trilogy, Star Trek, Alien, and Planet of the Apes films. Um, since I like the dynamic of we're having one good, one bad, one good, one bad when it comes to the uh, reviews of Spaceballs, we'll start with Mr. Uh, Goss again, or Mr. Goss. Um, out of the things it parodied, what was one of your favorite parodies, or one of the worst parodies? It has to be the Alien par- uh, parody. <laughs> <laughs> and they use the same guy as the same actor from Alien. Uh, for those of you who have not seen the movie, this uh, this actually happens in the third act, towards the end of the film. And uh, Bill Pullman and John Candy, they're, uh, they're hanging out at this uh, diner. And we saw the... the what is that, um, that guy's uh, name from Alien? I forgot his, uh, his name. I can't remember his name off but the top he of was, my head. He was yeah. the, he's the actor who was later on in the... Uh, 50th anniversary of Doctor Who on that on that special episode, um, but anyways, he, he it's the same situation. He ate something, and the next thing you know, he has these terrible stomach pains to the point where he has to lay down, and something is trying to punch out of his stomach, and it happens to be this alien. And instead of it just tearing around and hiding and then causing havoc, it puts <laughs> on a little top hat. And gets a little uh, cane and starts singing, Hello, my baby! Hello, my darling! Hello, my ragtime gal! <laughs> and I just laugh uncontrollably every time I watch it. Uh, Mr. Mango, what was one of the best or worst, it doesn't have to either or, when it comes to uh, parodies of the, in this movie? Best, and actually one of the only jokes that I really, really liked, is the opening crawl, making fun of the Star Wars opening crawl, where they just add that one extra sentence of, if you can see this, you don't need glasses. (laughs) I love that. But I'll tell you what, bad one, the name Dark Helmet, or just even the name Spaceballs. It's almost as if they were looking at Star Wars and they were like, we need to do a Star Wars parody, what can we do? I don't know, space something, space what? What's funny? Uh, balls. Balls are funny. <laughs> Ugh. They definitely were trying for double entendres, that's for sure. <laughs> so you get something from the very beginning of the movie that has so much class and is so clever, and then so much of the rest of the movie is just dick jokes and you know <laughs> different stuff like that. Uh, Mr. Burham, what was your favorite and or worst uh, parody in the film? Well, you know I'm a big fan of dick jokes, so everything. <laughs> um... The, the the movie itself, uh, for me, I think the standout scene is exactly what Travis was going on about. Uh, the alien scene suit that pops out of his chest and starts doing the sing and dance. Uh, it it really like made sense. But there's there's loads of stuff in this movie that you can look at that it, it parodies. And maybe uh, I think a lot of sort of the that the disagreement here may stem from the fact that it parodies nearly everything, the whole spectrum of space movies. You know, it doesn't just have one nailed down. It, it tries to do everything at once. Um, but yeah, most definitely that scene, uh, because I just had a huge giggle, because it was not only parodying Aliens, it's also parodying like Warner Brothers with the frog, you yeah. know, the top hat. So, that, you know, it, it, it kind of brought those two little elements of my childhood together. 
uh, it's weird to say aliens is part of my childhood, but yeah, it's like together and, and just mishmashes them into one um, funny little ball of laughter. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Payne, favorite and or worst uh, parody. I really don't have any positive ones to go into. <laughs> I gotta be absolutely frank with you there. Um, actually, I think maybe my my one favorite part that I did like was when they uh, were putting in the tape of Spaceballs. It's like, what, how how do you have that? Oh, oh it's, yeah. it's a new technology. You know, now movies are on the shelves before they're even finished being made. And then he puts on the movie, and he ends up fast forwarding up to the point where they actually are in the movie. It's like, wait, this is now? No, that was then. What? <laughs> like they just get to this whole like Laurel and Hardy back and forth. That, that thought that was cute. Um, other than that, man, these, like I said, these jokes were just an absolute disservice to Star Wars, which is just an absolutely beloved franchise. Um, why were the Jawas friends with Yoda? What? What the crap? I I, I don't know. I, this, this whole movie just infuriated me. And maybe if I wasn't a fan of Star Wars. I, I wouldn't be so upset about it, but at the same time, I'm a fan of westerns. I'm a huge fan of the story of both the stories of Robin Hood and Frankenstein. So I, I can't possibly go with that excuse. I think this is just a big miss, and just shows that uh, if Bell Brooks is on his own and he doesn't have Gene Wilder backing him, maybe he can't write characters. <laughs> the, way uh, look, the way I look at it, real quick, is but, I th- I think that even though if you are a hardcore Star Wars fan and you were to watch this movie. You you would know right up front not to take it seriously because it's just a, a funny movie. It's just full of parodies of all these great uh, sci-fi films. I mean, I, you just have to take it with a grain of salt and just realize it's just a parody. It's just if Star Wars fran- uh, fans can appreciate it for what it is, that's one thing. But I wouldn't take it too seriously though. Uh, one thing that when it comes to referencing Star Wars is the whole concept of the Schwartz in. Uh, Spaceballs, which is obviously a parody of the Force from Star Wars episode, uh, just any Star Wars, the Force, and the lightsabers emanating from the rings. Now, uh, when it comes to the Schwartz, it's it's definitely a penis joke. And of course, it's a penis joke. We'll start with you, Mr. Burhan. What were your feelings on the Schwartz? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you think it was just uh, way said, too much? The whole movie is a penis joke. People. Call- I, I never understand when people take things too seriously when someone's trying to parody um, a, a film because it, in itself, it's basically... The, the whole thing is not just about space. It's a complete and utter penis and ball gag. That, that, that's the whole thing. What's, what leads to balls? Penises. But we're going to do a penis parody. And let's talk about penises and balls and look, your Schwartz is bigger than mine. You know, it's... It, you know, it, exactly. I heard a giggle there. I heard a chuckle. And it's it's just one of those tongue in cheek things where, you know, it, it was done uh, a lot around the times of like married with children, so to speak, as well. Um, it's it's kind of had a resurgence to in our time now, where you see loads of like um, comedy series like The League and Always Sunny in Philadelphia and stuff to consist of a load of penis and ball jokes because of the fact that you know it it it's a cheap gag, but it's still a gag, you know and Mel Brooks, for the, for the love of him, decided to do a whole movie that was just that, you know? In, in your opinion, before we move on, do you think it was too much or too little? Um, I, I just think it was in the middle, really. I, I don't think it was too much. To over your movie. head that he just made a penis joke. <laughs> Completely <laughs> over your head. <laughs> Sorry, I set you up for that. You kind of did. <laughs> But 
Now, by the way, my Schwartz is bigger than yours. <laughs> nice. Um, Mr. Payton, your opinion on the Schwartz. Um, too much, too little. What are your thoughts? Way, way too much. I, I could enjoy a good dick joke occasionally, but when you're basing a whole movie just on that, you, you need to have more about that. I mean, you referenced uh, Always Sunny, which is one of my favorite shows. They they have dick jokes a lot, but they also have lots of other jokes. They have a lot of character humor. They have a lot of dark humor. They they go all over the place. Uh, this movie is just that same joke over and over. And like I said, there's there's no character development throughout this. There's no story for me to get behind. And even though it's a comedy, you still have to have a situation for you to feel like you're, there's a risk. There's a, that, that's the, the classic comedy setup. There, there's a person, there's a problem, and they need to get themselves out of that problem. Uh, I, I just didn't feel the stakes in this. It's like they, the princess didn't feel like anybody important. The, the mishmash of Han Solo, Luke Skywalker was just a douche. Uh, one of John Candy's worst roles, uh, we were talking about people having bad roles. John Candy, who is one of my favorite comedians of all time, was just not on point in this. Um, how many times can you make a stupid tail joke? Like, I, I just could not stand any of that in this movie. Uh, uh, of course, if you look at the, the whole role of the dog, though, get it? Men are dogs. But I'm sure. <laughs> well, you make a valid point, and, and just to keep the flow of the conversation on the Schwartz real quick. Um, Travis, what was your opinion on the whole Schwartz? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, when I was a kid, I was didn't I exactly understood the whole concept about the Schwartz, well, what it really was. But it wasn't until um, it got to that scene where it was that that Schwartz battle between Dark Helmet and um, Lone Star, and that's when I kind of realized, oh, so that's what the Schwartz is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you... Travis seems very weird. <laughs> but do you feel that? Um... It was over the top. Now, in hindsight, or at least rewatching it, did you feel that it was too much? Or I think in hindsight it could have been too much. But that also you have to realize too that um, he didn't. I mean, what I perceive as it could be a bit too much. Maybe in Mel Brooks's mind. I mean, this kind of goes back to a previous conversation with uh, with Blazing Saddles. Was he was trying to. It was it was a running gag, as it were, but he didn't make it too over the top. But looking back on it now, I think from my perspective, it was a bit too much. But I mean, that's just how I feel about it. Okay. And lastly, Tony, what was your opinion on the Schwartz? I'm not a big fan of dick jokes unless it's done really, really well. And if it's not clever enough, then I think it goes over really poorly. Um, I'm going to kind of skip ahead here and reference something from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Pretty much the only joke in Men in Tights that I'm not a fan of and I think is done really poorly is a dick joke. And it's when they have the chastity belt and... Roger Reese just looks into the camera and he goes, that's going to chafe my willy. It's like, ah, oh, it doesn't take <laughs> any fucking effort to do that. I mean, I can appreciate a fart joke, a dick joke, any kind of a joke if it's cleverly written. You but... laugh when somebody burps. Right, it, it is funny <laughs> Like if somebody does that kind of stuff. And it's in the same sense, uh, a lot of slapstick things can be funny. If somebody falls in public, I am going to laugh my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> especially if it's somebody who should not be falling, like a little kid or something like that. But if You're somebody... going to make a great dad, Tony. Just right, I will. Well, if that kid falls, I'm going to laugh, and then I'll pick him back up. But uh, 
in a movie, you need to be on par more than that. And something like uh, most slapstick jokes, most dick jokes, most fart jokes, or people uh, taking a dump or something like that, they're usually such easy jokes that I can't really give them too much credit. I think there's way too much in this movie. And if the whole movie's supposed to be built on the idea of doing dick jokes and stuff, I think they missed out a huge opportunity to make some real jokes about Star Wars. Um, one one thing that I would like to talk about, and we talked about, we touched base in every segment here on our uh, podcast this evening, is casting. Uh, now that we're into a decade or later decade that we actually know actors that existed around the time of the movies, um, let's take a look, a further in-depth look at the casting. And just to remind everybody out there of the casting, uh, some of the people that were starring it, higher names, Bill Pullman was Captain Lone Star, which obviously is a play on... Han Solo with a little mix of Luke Skywalker in there. John Candy as Bartholomew, or Barf, uh, who played the Wookiee or companion to the Bill Pullman. Uh, Joan Rivers voiced Dot Matrix. And Rick Moranis played uh, Lord Dark Helmet. Now, to me, those are the four key people that stick out and big names that we know. But if we were to look back, was this good casting? Was Bill Pullman a good uh, rugged hero? Was John Candy a good sidekick? We'll start with you, Mr. Goss. How did you feel about the casting for Spaceballs? Well, again, uh, as we mentioned, as I mentioned with uh, Blazing Saddles, um, they casted uh, uh, someone who was actually uh, someone who did like more serious roles and all that. And you, you would see that in a lot of these Mel Brooks movies. And we're going to talk about that when we come to our final film of the of the whole show. Um, but the casting of Bill Pullman as as Lone Star, I could I couldn't see anybody else playing him. To be honest, I think he did a pretty good job. Okay, uh, how did you feel about uh, John Candy, uh, Dot Matrix, and all them, uh, the other characters within the movie? Well, uh, I mean, I was a huge John Candy fan when I was growing up, and I still am today, even though he's long since uh, passed on. Um, they just hired a lot of uh, comedians uh, to play these various uh, roles, and I thought John Candy, my opinion, I think he did a pretty good job. Um, though I was not a big fan of uh, Joan Rivers, and I'm still not a big fan of hers, I cannot understand for the life of me why she was cast as Dot Matrix. Maybe it's because of the annoying voice, I don't know. <laughs> but um, apart from that, I think... I think they did a pretty good job. And I think like uh, Mel Brooks had two roles in this film. Mm-hmm. He was President Screw and um, Yogurt. Yes, and a fairly large role at that. Um, Tony, what were your opinions on casting? Did they did they hit some good actors to actually portray what they were trying to get across, or would you have recasted uh, some of the lead roles? I think that the actors did fine for what the source material was, and that's the problem of the movie. It wasn't necessarily that bad actors couldn't bring it to life. Although there is one exception. Whoever it was that played Princess Vespa, I don't even remember who her name, what her name is. She's completely replaceable. Anybody else could have played that role exactly no, the same. She actually came from... Um, when she was playing that role afterwards, she was cast in, uh, I believe it was Melrose Place. Um, I I do remember that because as a kid I had a thing for her, so yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she's attractive, out. but she's just not anything special for yeah, an she's, actress. Yeah, she's a terrible actress, <laughs> but she was damn attractive. 
Mr. Burhan, what were your thoughts on the casting? Would you have changed anything? Did they hit any nails on the head? Uh, in the end, I think everybody was kind of forgettable. Um, John Candy himself probably stood out the most because he was gaining steam back at that time anyway. Um, but I, I, everybody was forgettable. Oh, no, you know what? Morat, Rick Moranis as well. The fact that they had him playing sort of the Vader role was kind of more, again, it was a dick joke because he was smaller. So, you know, everyone else is taller. So you have to be a bit of a prick because he has a smaller dick than everybody else. Um, it, it, again, it, yeah, I think the only two that stand out there would probably be Moranis and um, John Candy. Uh, everybody else just, they didn't, you know, every role could have been replaceable. Uh, and lastly, Mr. Payton, what were your thoughts on the casting? You know, it's a shame on paper. It looks like a really all-star cast. Uh, you Bill Pullman. Um, <clears throat> fuck, why am I <laughs> John Candy? I was just, just like, ah, oh, the fat guy, you know. I freaking love him, but I can't remember his name. Um, Joan Rivers, who, you know, you may find her annoying, but that's a huge name. And a cameo by Michael Winslow, which I thought actually was one of the better cast Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was probably one of the best ones to actually dig it in there. I, and I did not like any of these people. I did not like any of them as they were cast. I did not feel like they were those characters. I felt like they were actors on the screen playing these roles that were scripted out there. Um, even John Candy, like I said, is one of my favorites. Um, Rick Moranis is the only one that I really felt believable. He was this pipsqueak who was, had this real Napoleon complex trying to get everyone to listen to him and pay attention. I, I like that one. Aside from that, though, all passable. Um, I think they, they could have spent more time on casting and maybe gotten something better out of it. But then again, I just thought the writing in the movie sucked, too, so maybe it's for the best. Didn't ruin anybody's careers. Uh, well, one of the next points that I would like to touch base on is when it comes to this film, and he does it in a lot of his films, but to me it felt heavier in this one more so than any, what is Breaking the Fourth Wall. And for those of you who don't know what Breaking the Fourth Wall is, it's when the uh, film or movie or theater that you're watching reaches out and engages the audience and draws them into the story, such as saying, talking to someone on stage, turning and going, hey, did, can you believe this guy? And bringing you into the action. Now, when it comes to Spaceballs, uh, Breaking the Fourth Wall is something they've done so many times throughout the movie and through Mel Brooks films. But the one point that sticks out is the VHS tape to find the people and where they're located. When it comes to breaking the uh, fourth wall, we'll start with you, Mr. Burhan. Did you feel that this is better for films or worse for films? It's kind of Brechtian in a sense, because Brecht always basically looked at his characters where he wanted the audience to feel that they were watching a play. He didn't want people to submerse themselves in it. And when you're watching a comedy, you can't really submerge yourself in a comedy. You know, you have to know that the comedy itself is a parody of something that you like. Um, so Breaking the Fourth Wall is part of that. You know, they're like, uh, with the videotape thing, it was funny. It was funny because they poked fun at the fact that they can't find these guys. What are we going to do? We're going to come up with something stupid, which would never in a million years happen. But we did it just so we could continue the story. You know, um, and I, I found it hilarious. You know, a little a little chuckle with the gag um, had a nice little punchline to it as well. And breaking the fourth wall when it's needed, you know, it works. And you know, it, for instance, big for instance, and a shout out to a character that I know you yourself like, Deadpool, breaks the fourth wall constantly. 
you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it's funny because you love the character because he does that. And that's the same in the sense of this movie, in the sense of what Mel Brooks does. He tends to do it to kind of let you know that there's a joke going on rather than basically having you submerge yourself in something where he knows it's, you're, you know it's not real. Okay. Uh, Peyton, what are your thoughts on breaking the fourth wall? I think breaking the fourth wall can be done cleverly, but when done too much, it takes you out of getting yourself immersed in what's going on, which I already had a hard time getting myself immersed because the characters weren't believable. There wasn't a story I was able to get behind. So then when you overload it with breaking the fourth wall, it just makes it impossible. Okay, and Mr. Goss? I like it when movies do break the fourth wall, but, I mean, it's just like what Peyton said. If you do it too much, it just it will take you right out of the film. But um, I kind of appreciate that that, 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 that um, occasionally throughout this film, like uh, when Rick Moranis will turn to the camera and say, has everybody got that? And they I don't know, expect the audience to grab their balls and say, of course you do, sir! But, um... <laughs> um and... I just, the little subtleties of breaking the fourth wall, I can appreciate, but, you know, some movies do it better than others. Okay. Uh, real quick, before we move on and end this segment on Spaceballs, we're going to go around the horn real quick and get the rankings on a 1 to 10 scale. 10 saying it's absolutely gold, and 1 saying it's a turd. So we'll start with you, Mr. Burhan. 1 to 10, Spaceballs. Give it an 8. Um, it did what it was supposed to do. Made me laugh. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't one of those sort of pants-wettingly funny comedies, but it was still funny, especially for its time. Okay, Mr. Payton? Two. <laughs> Mr. Goss? I will give this movie a nine, and the animated show a one. <laughs> and lastly, Mr. Mango? I'm going to go with a two. Okay, so a roller coaster of rankings when it comes to Spaceballs. Uh, for those of you that are listening live, we're getting ready to roll into Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Those of you watching the archive sessions, make sure you tune in for our last and final segment here on Four Wheel Movie Club, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, uh, as we get rolling into the next segment. So those of you that are sticking with us, joining us for the last segment of Four Wheel Movie Club, we're going to be doing Robin Hood, Men in Types. So we're jumping ahead six years from Spaceballs, the last movie we talked about, to follow a musical adventure comedy film that parodies the Robin Hood story. Produced and directed by Mel Brooks, the film stars Carrie Ells, Richard Lewis, and Dave Chappelle in his film uh, debut. Some other names that are in this uh, film are Tracy Ullman, Dom DeLuise returns yet again, and uh, Roger Rees as the Sheriff of Rottingham. Um, the film itself, like I said, parodies Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, upon which the plot is loosely structured um, and is one of the last releases when it comes to our chronology of the films that we've gone over tonight. So we'll do what we've done in the last three segments and what we'll do going forward. Uh, we'll go around the horn and get the opinions of what you thought of the movie first thought. Start with you, Mr. Tony Mango. This is my favorite comedy of all time. And it's been for as long as I can remember above all other comedies that I've ever seen. And I love a lot of other comedies. This is by far my favorite of all time. Okay. Uh, Mr. Gus. I really couldn't stand Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But when this came out, I was like, all right, finally a decent, awesome Robin Hood movie. Okay. And it was by Mel Brooks. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Burhan. Lost my ass off. Um, I agree with Tony. It's one of my faves, too. It, it just took the whole Robin Hood thing uh, and, and the whole like parody genre to another level. 
it, it was done right. It was done very tastefully. And you know what? It really took the god-awful Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, which I saw as a kid in the cinema and felt dirty afterwards, uh, and turned it on its head. And lastly, Mr. Payton. I love the story of Robin Hood. Um, I love almost every single incarnation of Robin Hood I've ever seen. Not not so much Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but the, the Disney version, the original one from the 30s. Um, I even like the Russell Crowe version. I'll go ahead and say that. I enjoyed that one. Um, <laughs> poor, poor man. <laughs> but for, for a comedy to be applied to that, I thought that was really unique, and I, I liked a lot that went down in it. Um, we'll talk about the casting, so I won't nail that one now. But... One thing I realized while rewatching this now, and I guess I didn't notice it then because it was current, um, a lot of in-jokes, you know, a lot of references to current events and things that were cool at the time, and I think that hurts the movie. Uh, watching it back now, those things were not as funny as I'm sure they were when I was watching it in 1996 or whatever it was. You know, the, the, whole, uh, the whole Kevin from Home Alone doing the, ah, thing while slapping his face. You know, that, that means nothing now. Um. Like we said, casting when it comes to Robin Hood Men and Tights, it has a lot of big names. Dave Chappelle in one of his breakout roles, and also Patrick Stewart who played King Richard. So what we'll do is we'll dive right in and start talking about casting. And we'll start with you, uh, Mr. Goss. What did you feel about the casting? And before we get into the opinion, I just want to run down some of the cast. Carrie Ells played Robin Hood. Richard Lewis played Prince John. Roger Rees, the Sheriff of Rottingham. Amy Aspect as Maid Marian of... Bagel, and Dave Chappelle as a Chew, and like I said, Patrick Stewart as King Richard, Tracy Ullman as the Latrine the Witch, and Isaac Hayes as Asneez. Um, so we'll start with you, Mr. Goss. What were your feelings on the cast when it comes to Robin Hood Men in Tights? Oh, God. A very eclectic cast, that's for sure. Um, and once again, you had a very serious actor playing a comedic role, which is pretty nice. Kerry Yules, which uh, um, all of us remember from The Princess Bride turned in a great performance there. And then later he was in the first Saul movie, and I think in the last one as well, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, awesome movie. I love it. Um, great cast. Um, he, I mean, once again, he had another movie where he had Dom DeLuise, Dom DeLuise in, this, in the film. You, you were saying, you were doing it in Chinese, weren't you? Are you what? Weave. You were doing it in Chinese. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, I was. Hmm. Anyway, uh, got him in there, and I tell you the truth, I that was the very first time I ever saw Amy Yazbek. I did not know who she was until that movie came out, and I think it was around that time I was really starting to fall in love with redheads. Okay, but um, anyways, no, I seriously, they'll. Do, I think they did a pretty good uh, job of casting all these really great actors and comedians. Okay, uh, Mr. Payton, thoughts on casting? Fantastic. Carrie Elwes is perfect in the fantasy role. Um, I always just, because of how perfect he is in this and how perfect he is in Princess Bride, I always just mash these movies into like they're one continuous movie to me. Because um, the, they both have that fantasy slash comedy influence on them, um, even though they're completely different stories, really. But uh, Dave Chappelle was excellent seeing him in this, especially when it's such a young Dave Chappelle. Uh, the fellow who plays Blinken, the fellow who plays Lil John, all perfect in their roles. Uh, the guy who plays the Sheriff of Rottingham is absolutely hilarious. Um, Pr Prince John, total coward. Uh, everyone nailed their roles perfectly. It, the, almost the complete opposite of all the other movies we're talking about here. I actually enjoyed almost the entire cast. Okay, Mr. Burhan. 
Yeah, uh, what can I say? What's already been said. Uh, great movie, great cast, uh, great funny story, and I love the musical numbers. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Mango, what are your thoughts on the casting? Man, it's so fucking good. Everybody <laughs> nails it. Little John is a huge guy who isn't just a huge person that they put in the role who can't have comedic timing. Uh, there's a great reference to the Kevin Costner casting when he says, unlike other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. Fucking nailed that line. <laughs> Amy Yazbek, a hot Maid Marian instead of, instead of somebody like Kate Blanchett in the Russell Crowe one, which she's supposed to be like the, the fairest maiden of the land. Give me a fucking break. Uh, <laughs> Blinken, um, Achu, everyone, even um, what is it? Isaac Hayes plays a sneeze, a reference to the Morgan Freeman character in Parents of Thieves. Just everything is amazing about this movie. It's so good. The casting is perfect. Um, one other thing that we'd like to talk about when it comes to this film is the reception. Um, as you can see, it, it's, it's getting a mostly positive, well, actually all positive reviews when it comes to the panel that we have on tonight. But surprisingly, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 48% overall rating, yet the, there's such a huge cult following behind it. Now, why do you think when it comes to the film world that it gets such negative reviews, and then when it comes to people who actually pay for the film, it gets such great reviews? And we'll, we'll start with you, uh, Mr. Burham. What are your thoughts on this? Did Rotten Tomatoes rate Prince of Thieves at a high? I can look that up right now. You should do that. And if they did, then they know nothing. Um, it's, uh, again, it's, it's satire. I think it's depending on your audience, really. Uh, you can get people... I, I, I tend to find that a lot of moviegoers are very honest in their approach. But there are certain tastes that people like. Reviewers uh, tend to go one way than another. If there's a, a standout actor that's you know going to get an Oscar at some point, they'll basically praise the film to high heaven, Russell Crowe. And um, if, if they basically like look at... Uh, a film that is, it has no relevance in terms to their own spectrum, they'll then rip it to shreds. You know, it depends on the the film school, depends how you rate things, and it depends on what kind of critic you are. You know, you could be the Jay Sherman saying that everything stinks. Uh, you could basically go for the whole Siskel and Ebert approach where one person likes it, one person doesn't. It, it's totally different in terms of taste and flavor in a sense. Okay. And... Just to touch back on the point that you said, Prince of Thieves scored a 59% on Rotten Tomatoes, and Men in Tights had 48 uh, uh, Prince of Thieves was done with a total American accent for everyone. No one, nearly everyone. So again, that shows how much they know. And, and MIT is just a, a flip side of it, got 81% and 73% for fan votes went to Prince of Thieves, so it did better. Um, but sitting on that, the, the, the such... The critics versus the fan base. Uh, Mr. Payton, what are your thoughts on why they're so different and why it would be a turnoff to a lot of uh, critics? I think some people just don't get it, especially older people. I just don't think they get this kind of comedy. Um, you know, like I say, they're, they're more of a fans of the classic. You set up a joke and you deliver. And these aren't those kind of jokes. They're, they're quick one-liners. They're, they're parodies of things that you have to know exist to get. Um, so I, I think that's why there's a lot of negative reaction to the film, or, or anything Mel Brooks does, for that matter. Uh, Mr. Goss? Um, I don't know, just... When it comes to me when I watch movies, I really could care less what the critics think. For me, it's like, I, I can just see for myself if it's going to be good or if it's going to be rubbish. So, I don't know, I really, I really could care less what the critics think. 
Okay, and lastly, Mr. Mango, what are your thoughts of why the critics are so harsh compared to the uh, fans that love it? You know, I really don't have a clue why. I can't see why they can look at some of these other movies that come out around the same time period or before or after it that don't have anywhere near as much solid writing behind it for the jokes and think that they're funnier and then say this is terrible. I have no idea why, but fuck them. This movie's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Just to give you some facts about the film, the average runtime is uh, 104 minutes. Uh, the budget was $20 million, and in domestically, it brought in $35 million. Uh, the studio that released it was Gaumont and Brooks Films, distributed by 20th Century Fox, and was released July 28th of 1993. So I was alive for this one. Um, when it comes to Robin Hood Men in Tights, and we touched base on it a little bit because of... Uh, we were talking about Princess... I uh, can't think of the damn name right now. But Carrie Ellis. He seems to fit this role very perfectly, and I want to touch more base and get your opinions and thoughts on his performance as Robin Hood. And uh, we'll go around. We'll start with you uh, this time, Mr. Payton. What did you think of as him as Robin Hood? Oh, he nailed it. He he was stoic. He was joyful. He was funny. He was serious when he needed to be. Same performance he did with the, the Princess Bride. He he had so many different uh, aspects that you need to be to play the hero role. I think he's one of the best people who have ever played the the hero rescuing the damsel in distress role. Okay. Uh, Mr. Burham? Uh, agreed with everything that Peyton said. He's basically very versatile, um, can actually like do a bit of comedy, a bit of improv, uh, and also can basically like play towards the strengths of the role when needed. So it, it worked really well on all levels there. Okay. Um, and Mr. Goss... When it comes to Carrie Ellis playing as Robin Hood, what are your opinions? I, I mean, like I said, Princess's Bride, it, it, he did fantastic in that, and to translate uh, over to this, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think he, was, he just did a fantastic job. Um, he was serious when he needed to be serious. He was hilarious when he was supposed to be funny. He just turned it into a solid performance, period. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Mango, what are your thoughts on our Robin Hood in Men in Tights? You know what? Carrie Owis in this film is pretty much the go-to Robin Hood for me. As a kid, before I had watched this movie, my go-to Robin Hood was that fox in the animated <laughs> version. <laughs> so this was a step up. He's always the Robin Hood, I picture, when people say it. Okay. Um, it's it's an interesting to know, when we did the facts before we went into talking about Carrie Owis, is uh, that Robin Hood Men in Tights was unfortunately not one of Brooks' best-grossing films. Uh, the film debuted at number six at the North American box office, only bringing in six million. But the film went on to, like I said, do, uh, domestically uh, taking thirty-five. For being such a great film and cult classic, and sometimes this happens. You look at films like Clerks; they don't really take off until they hit DVD or they hit the market to where you can watch it at home. Why do you think, after having a track record with this previous films, this one didn't grab audiences and put their butts in seats? Uh, we'll start with you, Mr. Goss. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know if the studio wasn't really heavily promoting it. That could be the case. But then again, I was seeing advertisements on TV for it. Um, I don't know. That's a kind of tough question because I really, really love this movie. Um, I don't know. I don't. I really don't have an answer for that. Uh, Mr. Payton, any thoughts on why this could have occurred? Oh, uh, what year did this come out again? Ninety-three. I think I know why. 
1993 is widely considered to be the single greatest year in film cinema of all time. Um, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of that, but if you just look at all the movies that were made this that year, just a, a fantastic list. And it's going to be, you're hard pressed to find the year. I think the other one that only came into contention was like 1937 or something like that. The, the year that like gone with the wind or something came out. Um, so I think it might have had a lot of other competition, and a, a silly comedy movie is probably not going to have a lot of chance if it's anywhere near, say, like Jurassic Park. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to stand a chance at all. Um, and, and I just imagine a studio not putting a lot of money into a movie like this coming out. You know, it probably just got the most basic of posters and other advertisements. And this was probably some movie that enough people saw in theaters were like, hey, you know, you should go uh, pick this up at Blockbuster. And then people started renting it, and then people started buying the VHS, and that's how it got popular. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Burhan. Uh, again, it was one of those movies where it didn't catch popularity in the cinema, uh, but it wasn't part of that whole sort of trend of parodies that came out and were released in cinemas again and again and again. And again, you know what type of movies I'm talking about, the scary movie culture, anyone. Um, you know, at this time, it wasn't, that wasn't the kind of focal point. People never went into cinema to actually see these types of movies. They were more going in to watch the more sort of serious roles, the more dramatic roles, Prince of Thieves. Um, so, you know, I, I can see the reason why it went over a lot of people's heads. And lastly, uh, Mr. Mango, why, why do you think they didn't put butts in seats when it came to the cinema release? I'll give you a bunch of reasons really quick. Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Sandlot, Tombstone, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, Last Action Hero, Groundhog Day, Mrs. Doubtfire, Philadelphia, Nightmare Before Christmas, Super Mario Brothers. They couldn't stand a chance in this. And it's a shame. <laughs> Yeah, they couldn't stand a chance against Super Mario Brothers. Oh, God, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, that, that movie was well, one drunken night after another. Wait, 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 wait. Let's just talk about that for just one second, all right? <laughs> L- looking back on it, it's easy to laugh at it, but I remember when that movie comes out, the hype that was going for it was Phenomenal. huge. There was trading cards before the movie was even in theaters. Everybody <laughs> around huge. our age needed to see that movie. And, mm-hmm. I mean, we could keep going on and on. Peyton nailed it uh, when he said that it's just in this big-time uh I guess you could say a black hole where all these other huge movies come out and just suck all the money away from it. And it's really a shame. I mean, some of these movies were pretty bad. I can't give too much credit to Beethoven's second or Cuphead's <laughs> or movie <laughs> I I'm a huge fan of some of these movies too. Like even RoboCop. I loved the RoboCop movies as a kid, but RoboCop three got awful. And even something like Cool Runnings. I mean, these movies are these huge movies for people around our age. And whether it's a Sister Act 2 or The Fugitive, there's just so many movies that came out in 93, and it just took away from it. Okay, one of the last things we're going to go through around the table, uh, like we have in all our other segments. What did you take away? What was the funniest moment? We'll start with uh, you, Mr. Mango, since for some reason I just keep putting you last. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what is your favorite moments or takeaways when it comes to Robin Hood Men in Tights? 
I could go on forever and ever. I'm going to be try to try to be really quick about this and mention as many as possible. Um, I actually do like some of the references that Peyton had mentioned earlier that are kind of dated. The Rodney King reference, where he just says, "I hope someone's getting a video of this." I love the subtlety to that, and I didn't get that at all when I was a kid. And I love rewatching this over the years to be able to get those kind of jokes. Um, I love the references to the older movies too. The Hangman from Blazing Saddles pops up. There's the great line in the movie where Chu says, uh, they would go, oh, a, a black sheriff. And he says, why not? Worked in Blazing Saddles. Great line. <laughs> Igor and the Hump. And not knowing that, uh, Prince John doesn't know he's got the mole. I did the talent show um, for my high school. And Dace knows this because he was a part of the same thing. And we did Men in Tights, the theme song. So that's another great one. Uh, Blink and the character in general. Something like Dirty Ezio and Filthy Luca. I will take these cotton balls from you with my hand and put them in my pocket. It's such a an awkward line. And Dom DeLuise just looking at him going like, okay. <laughs> I love those kind of jokes. And some of them have stuck with me so far over the years to the point where a little quick reference thing like Sheriff of Rottingham instead of Nottingham. If you ask me to say what that character is, almost assuredly I will call him Rottingham instead of Nottingham. Uh, I went through and watched Prince of Thieves a couple years ago for the first time specifically to catch all these references from the movie that I didn't understand before, and it's just amazing. Uh, one other one that I can mention real fast is the Little John bridge scene is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> that is so fucking good. Okay, uh, lastly, uh, let's go around. I don't know why lastly. Um, Mr. Payton, what are your thoughts? What's your takeaways when it comes to Robin Hood Men in Tights? One line that I repeat almost on a daily basis, and it's actually like a great life philosophy to go by, and it comes from that very scene that Tony just finished off talking about with Lil John and the bridge. A toll is a toll, and a roll is a roll. <laughs> and if we don't get no tolls, then we don't eat no rolls. I mean, I <laughs> Mr. Burhan, what, what's your takeaway? What, what moments resonate with you when it comes to Robin Hood Men in Tights? The men, the men in tights. Tight. Yes, that's pretty much it. Men in tights. <laughs> how, how can you not love this movie? Seriously, um, that's the the whole moment with these guys and their balls hanging out, uh, and the fact that they look really prissy but manly at the same time, showed me how to be a man. <laughs> and lastly, Mr. Goss, what's your takeaway? What what mo- moments from Robin Hood, Men in Tights, really stick with you to this day? Uh, well, it looks like the panel kind of already touched on some of the more uh, memorable ones. Uh, a couple of them that I have right in my mind right now is uh, when we have the introduction of Maid Marian, and she's uh, in the bathtub, and she's singing and everything. The camera just gets closer and closer, and then all of a sudden, we cut to her singing in the bathtub, and then we hear like some uh, glass breaking, and then all of a sudden, cuts the shot of where the camera actually busted through the window, which is actually kind of a nod to um, a scene from High Anxiety. And the only other scene I think of is when they're trying to recruit more men for... Um, um, oh, jeez, what the hell? When they were recruited... Uh, Robin Hood is trying to recruit more men to, to join him and everything, that they go up to this one little booth where... Uh, Dave Chappelle's character is giving him these huge eggs of pantyhose to put on the, the tights and all that. Um, 
but no, but apart from that, this was another really good uh, Mel Brooks movie. I'm I'm kind of bummed that it got panned as much as it did um, by critics, which again I could care shit. I don't give a shit about those critics, but they really panned it. And box office wise, even though it was a success, it didn't get nearly as much money as it should have deserved. But I think it was a good little film. I think it's definitely definitely one of my favorites of all time. Okay. Lastly, we'll go around the horn, and we will rank the movie 1 through 10 when it comes to uh, 10 being this movie's phenomenal, run out and buy it right away, or 1, uh, don't waste your time. We'll start with you, Mr. Payton, 1 through 10. I'll, uh, I'll give this an 8.5. Okay, Mr. Burhan. 9. Okay, Mr. Goss. Oh, I'm going to give this one a 9 as well. Okay, and lastly, Mr. Mango. Uh- if this is one of those things where you're trying to rank it based off of whether or not it should get best Oscar or anything like that, uh, it's not going to be a 10, but as far as me liking it and just enjoying the movie, definitely a perfect 10. Okay. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is Robin Hood, Men in Tights. And for the last two hours, you've heard us speak about the man known as Mel Brooks and all his films. He's a film director, screenwriter, composer, lyricist, comedian, actor, and a producer. Uh, his films that we discussed tonight have been Blazing Saddles, um, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, and lastly, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He's also known for the producers of Twelve Chairs, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, The History of the World Part 1, and much, much more. So, on our last notes that we want to do here for the first ever Four Real Movie Club, and something I'd like to do at all of them is just wrap up on our general theme and we'll go around the horn, and we want the final opinion of Sir Mel Brooks himself, Mr. Burhan. I think he was an underrated genius. Okay. Uh, Mr. Mike Payton. I think he's an overrated genius. I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have planned that better. Uh, <laughs> and Mr. Goss. I think he's a genius. Okay. And lastly, Mr. Mango. He's a middle-rated genius. (laughs) (laughs) And there are things that he can really nail, whether it's music, like uh, the music that's in Robin Hood Men in Tights, from the actual score and the love themes and the raps and, you know, Men in Tights theme and all that, and stuff in Blazing Saddles and all that. Or it can be some negatives that he can go so far over the top and it really just seems childish or he tried too hard and... It doesn't pan out as well. But there's one thing I would like to say about uh, Mel Brooks that I think can sum up the biggest positive of him. It's one quote that I've always really liked from him. Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The first For Real Movie Club is in the books, or in this case, on the screen. So what I need you guys to do is make sure you tune in one month away from today, and we'll be discussing our next group of roundtable and panelists about the next category of films. We're going to go around the horn right now, and we're going to talk to our guests and see what they've got going on. We'll start with you, Mr. Goss. Okay. I got a whole list here. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. On Wednesday nights here on Mega Powers Radio, I am on the Chris Dace Show with our host of hosts, Chris Dace. And that's uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. And I have other great shows that I'm a part of, like Thursday nights here on uh, Fanboys or 
Well, it could be on fanboysnimes.com. I need to post the article. Um, <laughs> uh, on the Blog Talk Radio, I have a show called The Young Radio Show, which is a take on the, those morning zoo radio programs. And as if the FCC has no control over it, it's a free-for-all, but it's a lot of fun. Go check it out. Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. And I have a couple of YouTube shows. i got YouTube.com slash Rose Card Reviews and YouTube.com slash Rose Card Let's Play. And if you guys want to get a hold of me personally, you can uh, get a hold of me on Twitter. Scott 79 is my Twitter handle. And Facebook.com slash TravisCoss1979 is where you can get a hold of me there. Of course, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm part of FanboysAnonymous.com. And a lot of really great things are coming up, so please stay with me. Okay. <laughs> terrible intro. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, Mr. Payton. Well, this has been a excellent first episode of the Four Real Movie Club here on Mega Powers Radio. Certainly awesome, Mr. Chris Dace. Congratulations to you and the rest of the panelists here. Please, everyone listening, continue supporting this show and all the other awesome things we got going on here at Mega Powers Radio. The main show I'm hosting is on Monday nights following Monday Night Raw. If you're a wrestling fan, certainly check it out. If you're not, you probably wouldn't dig it too much. But once again, that's after Raw every single Monday night. It's the Raw post show. We'll be talking about all that night's events. And, of course, inviting you to call in, as we do with all of our other shows on here. And as I said earlier, we have a special coming up this Tuesday. It's a tribute to the Ultimate Warrior. So, again, if you're a wrestling fan, you certainly know who the Warrior is. And we'll be talking about some of our favorite matches, our favorite moments, and all that other good, awesome stuff. Thanks again, Chris, and thank you, everybody. Mr. Burhan. Uh, always, I've got game 8 p.m. every Saturday night. Um, basically this uh, week we're going to be talking well next week shall I say uh, we're talking uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle games with the host of Turtle Flakes uh, so make sure that you actually tune in for that show as well um, and we this week's show we did uh, Nintendo Retrospective Part 2 as a continuation of Episode 7 uh, which was a Nintendo Retrospective we did the Retro Consoles I had myself Mr. Mike Payton uh, and a few other hosts on there including Mr. Nick Abrams and and Sean Mitchell as well, uh, avid members of fanboysanonymous.com. So we, we did that and talked about the 3DS and the Wii U and also Nintendo's future, where we see the company going. Uh, so check that out, guys. There's a huge load of archives. We're actually on now episode 71 now. We're going on to episode 72. So we're closing in to episode 100. So make sure you tune in uh, live on blogtalkradio.com. And you also can reach us on other little formats such as iTunes, Stitcher, Libsyn, loads of other places as well, because I know a lot of people are migrating into those formats as well. So thank you very much, guys. Uh, keep seeing you too. Also, uh, youtube.com forward slash Zena Genius if you want to look at my personal vlogs as well. And lastly, Mr. Mango. So much going under a mango tree. If you like the wrestling stuff mentioned earlier, go to smartoutmoment.com and subscribe to youtube.com slash smartoutmoment for the podcast Smack Talk. Make sure you check out everything else coming your way from fanboysanonymous.com by checking out the website and subscribing to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash fanboysanon, A-N-O-N where you can find our other videos, including the Group Meeting podcast. If you're in the South Jersey area, make sure to come out to South Jersey Geek Fest Convention, Saturday, April 19th. For more information, go to the website. Fanboys Anonymous, your your source for all things geeky. Go there. On behalf of my panel, I'd like to thank Mike Payton, Michael Burhan, Travis Goss, and Anthony Mango for being a part of the first ever Four Real Movie Club. Join us in the month of May as we have new panel a new panelist, and a new topic. And let's face it, you've got to be a man to wear tights. This has been the For Real Movie Club. 
At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I'm too old for this Good day, sir! You stay classy, San Diego. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'm finished. That'll help you. That'll go. Hasta la vista, baby. Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get late! You're still here? It's over. Go home.